77 verses 9 through 12 in unison, pausing briefly at the punctuation marks. Uh, the Word of God says, For thou, Lord, art high above all the earth, thou art exalted far above all gods. Ye that love the Lord hate evil. He preserveth the souls of his saints. He delivereth them out of the hand of the wicked. Light is sown for the righteous and gladness for the upright in heart. Rejoice in the Lord, ye righteous, and give thanks at the remembrance of his holiness. And let's pray. Lord, powerful scriptures. We're thankful for the book of Psalms that has gotten us through so many difficult days. We're glad for its instruction this evening. I pray that you'd open the word of God, that we may behold wondrous things out of thy law, that tonight would be more than just a few minutes spent in a pew, but we would spend time in your presence, and we could see these eternal truths from the scriptures, that the Spirit of God would speak deeply within our hearts, and we would be changed. Lord, we need to be changed. We want to be transformed. We want to be made like Jesus, and so please work in our hearts and lives this evening, uh, for it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. And you may be seated. Wonderful scriptures we read about the things of God. Tonight I want to preach a message entitled, The Christian's Attitude Toward Sin. The Christian's Attitude Toward Sin. We've preached a little bit about sin recently. We did a uh, Bible message on what is sin, uh, 20 reasons to hate sin, the penalty of sin. We've been talking about sin a little bit, and there's a reason for that. Uh, our world today is confused about what sin is. Christians don't even agree about what sin is. It's amazing how many Bible-believing so-called Christians don't even agree about the fundamentals of what is sinful activity and how a Christian should live in 2020. And I submit to you that if it's ever been wrong, it's wrong today. Amen. If it's ever been right, it's right today. We have a God who's immutable. He doesn't change. For I am the Lord, I change not. Jesus, the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so when it comes to this idea of sin and holiness, we must remember that God's attitude about sin, how he feels about sin, and how he defines sin doesn't change with what decade it is doesn't change with what century it is or what country you live in or what part of the world you're from, what culture you call your own. Every culture has things that are sinful. Every nation has things that are sinful. And so we must rely on the Bible to declare those things to us. So we've talked about some of those foundational things, but I want to talk tonight about our attitude towards sin. What should the Christian's attitude towards sin be? We all agree that Christians are saved sinners living in a world of sin. Yet we've been called to a life of holiness and sanctification. Sanctification means set apart from sin. Set apart from sin for God. And so uh, back in the Old Testament temple, you had sanctified elements. They would be used in the service of God. They weren't to be used for your daily meals. They weren't to be used for your picnics. They were reserved for God. And you and I have been sanctified. We've been 
separated from sin and set apart unto God, we're supposed to live differently than the rest of the world. First uh, Peter uh, reminds us that we are a peculiar people. We're supposed to be different. Uh, Titus chapter 2 reminds us that even grace teaches us that we ought to deny worldly lusts and live soberly and righteously in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing. And so, uh, without contradiction, the Word of God says that Christians should live a holy and a sanctified life. God said, Be ye holy, for I am holy. So if you are a, an honest student of the Bible, we can all acknowledge and agree that God wants His people to live a sanctified, separated, holy life. But how do we do that? We're saved sinners living in a sinful world. Christians are to be like a boat sitting in the waters of this sinful world. You know, we used to go fishing, and uh, I'd like to, I like to be on boats out in the water. We'd go fishing on the river. My, uh, my dad sometimes would take us down to the White River, and we'd go fishing and catch an awful lot of, of catfish. I was down south recently, and anytime I'm down south, I try to get some good old southern cooking and, uh, you know, some good cornbread. Hallelujah. And I had me some cornmeal pan-fried catfish fillets. And let me tell you, I felt the Holy Ghost on that one. I mean, he was, he was happy. And so uh, some good southern sweet tea. Uh, we used to go down there and get some catfish. And, you know, the river is a dangerous place. Dad would always say, listen, don't mess around on the river. It's not like a lake. You fall into a lake. You know how to swim. You'll probably be okay. You fall into the river. There's currents, there's brush underneath, there's, there's just all kinds of dangerous things. The water's muddy, uh, not like a, a clear stream or a, a, a more clear uh, uh, lake. It was muddy and dangerous and the water swirling. And Dad would always say, don't mess around on the river when you're in the boat. Enjoy it, but pay attention. Because, you know, there's no problem with the boat being on the water. But there is a problem when the water gets in the boat. I remember one time a friend and I, we uh, were going to go fishing on this lake, and a guy said, oh, you can use my boat, and we get in the boat, and we just start pushing out from, from uh, the, the shore, and we get about 10, 12 feet away from the shore, and all of a sudden the back of the boat just starts doing this, <laughs> you know, and someone had taken the drain plug out of the boat and never put it back in, and we were furiously paddling trying to get back to the, the shore before the boat went under, the rest of the story is we didn't quite make it. We, the, the, the boat actually sunk right by the shore. We had to pull the boat out full of water, dump it over, set it back. We were soaking wet. Oh, memories. Uh, but there's no problem with the boat being on the water. The problem is when the water gets in the boat. And there's no problem with a Christian being in the sinful world. Matter of fact, Jesus prayed, I pray not that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the world. And so there's no problem with you and I living in this sinful world because God's called us and empowered us to live a holy and sanctified life. The problem comes whenever the world gets in the Christian. And when the world gets in the Christian, we begin to sink. And so what do we do? What do we do about this sin? If we hope to live for God in this wicked world, 
we must learn how to navigate the waters of sin without being capsized, without allowing the sin to get into us. So tonight I just want to investigate what the Bible says about the Christian and our attitude towards sin. How should we think about sin? The Bible has a lot to say about how we Christians should think about sin. Consider this. How we think is as important as how we act. Let that sink in for a minute. How we think is as important as how we act. I know a lot of people, they say, well, I, I don't do anything wrong. I mean, I might, I might think bad things, but I'm not, I'm not acting on it. Well, the problem is you will. Because God made the mind to control every function of our body. You will become what you choose to think about. You will become like the people you choose to hang around. You will do that upon which you allow your mind to dwell. It's inevitable. If you think it, you'll eventually do it. If you don't learn to control this right here. In marriage counseling, sometimes we've had to help people that get into domestic disputes. They'll actually get physical with each other. And it's always a, a terrible thing whenever the people that we love the most, we end up hurting the most. And I'll always tell them, I'll say, you know, the reason why you laid hands on them with your hands is because you gave yourself permission to do it in your mind and your heart. You've done it a hundred times in your mind before you ever do it here. And the Bible's very clear that if we're going to live a holy and sanctified life, we must win the battle of the mind. We'll come back to our text in a few moments. Look at Romans chapter 7. We're talking about the Christian's attitude towards sin. The Apostle Paul was inspired to write that the Christian's battle is won or lost in the mind. How often do we know what we should do in our mind but the law of sin in our flesh fights against what we know we should do. Think about this. How many times this week did you say, I know I should, but you didn't? How many times this week did you say, I know I shouldn't, but you did it anyway? You know why? Because you wanted to. You were hungry. You were tired. You were angry. Fill in the blank. Your mind said, don't do that. But your sin nature said, but I want to. And your flesh won. Why? Because you lost the battle right here. Look at Romans chapter 7 and verse 23. Now look at verse 22. Look, look at verse 21. We could just read the whole thing. Matter of fact, let's look at verse 18. And we'll stop right there. Hi, right, verse 18. For I know that in me that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me. He said, I want to do right, but how to perform that which is good, I find not. So don't miss what he's saying. He said, I want to do the right thing, but I can't figure out how to do the right thing consistently. You ever been there? Read on. For the good that I would, I do not. 
but the evil which I would not, that I do. Now if I do that which I would not, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. So here he's talking about that inward battle of the Christian. He said, there's a part of me that wants to do right, and there's a part of me that wants to do wrong. And the Bible teaches that that saved part of you, the, that, that, that born-again part of you, it cannot sin, it doesn't want to sin, that it, it's indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. That's the part of you that wants you to do right. But your flesh, which is not saved, uh, this old corrupt flesh that we live in, it wants to do wrong. If you were a drinker, it still wants to drink. If you were a smoker, it still wants to smoke. If you were a curser, it still wants to curse. If you were lustful, it still wants to fulfill its lust. It wants what it wants. But there's a part of you that says, but I don't want to live that way. The Apostle Paul here says, I, I've learned that there's a part of me that wants to do right, but anytime I want to do right, there's always a part of me that wants to do wrong. Verse 22, for I delight in the law of God after the inward man, that's the saved part of you, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my what? My mind bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. So watch this. He said, I know what's right. I know what I should do. But my mind keeps being overcome by my flesh. And this is the great battle of all of us. Look at verse 24. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Do you ever get tired of you? Have you ever looked in the mirror and said, I can't stand you? I mean, I don't even like myself very much half the time. We get frustrated with ourselves because we keep doing what we know we shouldn't. We keep uh, not doing what we know we should. We get frustrated. We get angry with ourselves. And the Apostle Paul cries out, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? The inward part of me saved, but I'm still fighting this battle every day with my flesh. Who's going to deliver me? Oh, and God gave him the answer. Look at verse 25. I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Jesus is always the answer. I don't care what your problem is. The answer is Jesus. So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God. But with the flesh, the law of sin. Watch this. The Apostle Paul, through inspiration, said, I've learned that if I win the battle of sin in my mind, that my flesh doesn't have power over me. The battle is in the mind. This is why it's so important how you and I learn to think about sin. What is our attitude about sin? It's vital that we learn this truth. Jesus Christ empowers us to win the battle of the mind so that we can serve God. We have the power to bring every thought into the obedience of Christ. Think about this verse as I quote it for you. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5. Casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God and bring into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. So we don't have time to develop this fully, but, but here's the idea. Through the power of Jesus Christ, and one of the benefits of salvation is, you have the ability to control your thoughts. I know it feels like you don't, especially people who've 
who have an untrained mind or people who've struggled with different things. You just feel like your mind's out of control. Uh, you know, we've dealt a lot of, uh, with, with a lot of people over the year doing counseling, different types of, of uh, mental disorders and, and different things like that. And, and some of those things are just an untrained mind that have been taught your mind's broken. It will never think correctly, and you're just stuck like this the rest of your life. Well, the Bible teaches that Jesus Christ can give a sound mind, just like he did to the maniac of Gadara. Here's a guy, we said recently, he was a nude dude in a rude mood, running around, uh, living in, in, in a cemetery, breaking chains, terrorizing people. Then he meets Jesus, and the Bible says he's sitting down, clothed, and in his right mind. I believe Jesus Christ gives you the power to control your mind. Now, you can't control every thought that goes through your head because the Bible says Satan has fiery darts that can tempt us. And I believe those fiery darts are ideas, thoughts that he can shoot through your mind. But you decide whether or not you latch on to them and believe them. But you can discern the thoughts which are not from God and say, no, I reject that thought. That's not from God. I reject that thinking. That's not from God. I will not accept that. That's not from God. And you can bring every thought into the obedience of Christ. See, Christ in you, the hope of glory, is very powerful and active in your life if you'll let him. We can control the mind. We are not a slave to our mind. God made our mind to work for us. Christians should not walk in the vanity of our mind. That's what the wicked do. There's a lot of verses here that that I could remind us of. But Ephesians chapter 4 verse 23 says, And be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Philippians 2 5 says, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. Don't miss what I said. You can have the mind of Christ. God has given you the ability to think like Jesus. That's powerful. You ought to be praying every day, Lord, let me think like you. Lord, let me look at this situation like you would. Lord, let me see this situation like you you would. Lord, give me the mind of Christ. You can pray that, and God can help you think like Jesus. Because the Bible teaches us that our attitude toward life and the things in this life have a huge impact on our actions. Now, the Bible mentions four attitudes that God's people should have towards sin. So we've already laid the foundation that God, there's a lot in the Bible that says it's important about how you think because how you think affects what you do. But there's four things in the Bible when it comes to a Christian's attitude towards sin, and I want to show these to you and hopefully it'll be a blessing. So let's turn back to our text verses, Psalm 97. These are wonderful verses. We read verse 9, For thou, Lord, art high above all the earth, thou art exalted far above all gods. Amen. Aren't you glad we've got the right God? I'm glad we don't serve Baal or Ashtoreth or Molech or some other weird God the world has created, some Indian God, some spiritualistic God. The Hindus have over 300 million gods. I don't even know how you keep track of all that. Uh, Some people have a God for everything. No, we have Jehovah God. He's the creator of the universe, the God of heaven. And we know his son, Jesus Christ. But then the Bible says in verse 10, ye that love the Lord. Let me ask you a question. Do you love the Lord? I mean, honestly, you should. I mean, you should love God. You should really love him. 
You say, well, how do I know if I love him? Do you think about him? Do you tell people about him? Do you talk to him? If I ignored my wife, never spoke to her, didn't care to hear from her, and never talked about her, you might say, I'm not sure how he feels about his wife. But we don't make that same connection with Jesus. Some people never talk to him. They never want him to talk to them. They never want to go to his house. And they're not very interested in spending time with him. Folks, we ought to love the Lord. But then it says, ye that love the Lord, look at the next two verses, let's say them together, hate evil. Say them together again. Hate evil. Ye that love the Lord, hate evil. And see, here's the problem. The Bible says you will either love God or you will despise Him. What's despise mean? You're not giving Him His rightful place. If you love sin... You can't love God. And if you love God, you can't love sin. You know, I grew up in a farming community. One thing I learned is that if you have a garden, you hate weeds. You can't love the, you can't love the flowers and love the weeds. Oh, I'm so glad these weeds are taking over my flower bed. Oh, I'm so glad these weeds are killing my tomato plants. I didn't really want tomatoes anyway. No, you hate those things. And so you can't love God and, and love sin. The Bible says that we should love the Lord and hate evil. And here's number one. Sin should be hated. Sin should be hated. Hate means to dislike greatly. Now I'm going to move quickly through this because we just spent a whole sermon series a few months ago on 20 reasons to hate sin. Hopefully that was enough for you. But let me give you one more thought about why we should hate sin. Christians should hate sin because of what sin did to our world and to our Savior. How can you measure how bad sin is? And I I liken it to a storm. You know, the, the awfulness of a storm is measured by what it costs to fix the damage created by it. And the awfulness of sin can be calculated using the same measure. If a hurricane goes through and it destroys everything, they say, oh my, this caused a billion dollars in damage. Wow, that was a bad storm. Tornadoes go through the Midwest and and just in, in a matter of minutes can take lives and destroy towns. Just recently, we were under a tornado watch in New England. That's probably only happened uh, twice since I've been here, the, the, the almost 20 years I've been here. Not often we get a tornado watch here in, in New England. Usually we'll get the hurricanes. And not even many of those, praise the Lord. But boy, you see what storms like Katrina did. What storms like some of these other storms down south just wipe entire countries off the map. A friend of ours in... in uh, uh, Norwood, their church was flooded, just a, a crazy thing. A flash flood came down through their town and literally went through their church. Their entire basement was filled up nine or ten feet, and then it went four feet into the first floor. Hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of damage. That's a bad storm. So when we calculate sin, let, let's look at the awful effects of sin. We can see how bad sin is by 
what it did to our world and to our Savior. But if you want to see how terrible sin is, all you have to do is look at the cross. You'll see the raw truth behind the destructiveness of sin. Sin is so terrible, so damaging, so deadly, that God went to incredible lengths to pay for sin. And Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, the object of all heaven's glory, came down to earth, became a man, lived among sinful creation, died on the cross, was buried to pay for sin. Now here's the problem. The average Christian in America today says, what's the big deal? I don't do bad sins. I know it's a sin, but I mean, I'm not hurting anybody. No, you hurt Jesus. I'm not hurting anybody. You hurt God. And by the way, sin always hurts people. Sin hurts your family. It hurts your children. It hurts your spouse. It hurts your parents. It hurts your fellow church members. It hurts the preacher. It hurts your friends. It hurts the community. Sin is destructive. And we as God's people have to get over this. Well, my sin's not as bad as your sin. Your sin put Jesus on the cross. My sin crucified the Savior. And we must pray for a holy hatred for sin. Oh, God, help me to hate it. Help me to see it and to despise it and say, I don't want that in my life. Help me to reject it. Help me to stop making excuses for it. The Christian ought to hate sin. The Bible says in Proverbs 8.13, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Amos 5.15 says, hate the evil and love the good. We should have a holy hatred for sin. Let me ask you this. Do you hate sin? If not, you should. And we all ought to pray, God, help me to hate sin. But let me warn you, what we usually do is we hate other people's sin and excuse our own. I'll hate your sin. You're terrible. How could you do that? But my sin, no, you don't understand. That's, that's not that bad, and I got it all under control. No, Lord, help me to hate my sin. Help me to hate the sin in my life. All right, how should we feel about sin? What should the Christian's attitude towards sin be? Number one, sin should be hated. Number two, sin should be mourned. Look at Psalm 38. Psalm 38. Sin should be mourned. Psalm 38 and verse 18 says, For I will declare mine iniquity, I will be sorry for my sin. Now I want to ask you a pointed question. Are you sorry for your sin? Do you mourn when you sin? To mourn means to express grief or sorrow, to grieve, to be sorrowful when's the last time you just went to God and said Jesus I am so sorry for my sin I'm so sorry for I'm so sorry for my sin every day we ought to not just ask forgiveness for the the sins between us and God so we can have a good relationship with him we ought to mourn for our sin do you know you can mourn for the sins of others as a parent I often pray God forgive forgive my children of their sins help them to see Help them to see 
that they need you. Help them to follow you. You, you can mourn the sins of others. You can mourn the sins of a nation. Ezra was ashamed and sorrowful for the iniquity of the Israelites. He said in Ezra 9, 6, Oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift up my face to thee, my God, for our iniquities are increased over our head and our trespasses grown up into the heavens. See, here's the thing. When's the last time we shed a tear because of our sin? When's the last time we were grieved? And we said, oh God, I can't believe I did that. And I'm not talking about huge, life-shattering sins that are going to blow up your family and, and going to blow up the church and, oh, it's going to be a, a scandal in the community. I'm talking about the sins that we usually excuse, the sins that we say, oh, it's not a big deal. What's a big deal? I mean, I'm not a druggie. I'm not a murderer. No, it's a sin that put Jesus on the cross. And if God says it's a sin, it ought to be mourned. God, forgive us of our sin. One of the curses of this generation is that they're not ashamed of their sin. Look at Jeremiah chapter 8. Sin should be mourned. Jeremiah chapter 8. And look at verse 12. If you're there, say amen. Were they ashamed when they had committed abomination? Now, abomination is the strongest word for hatred in the Bible. And God said some sins are abominable. They're abominations. So were they ashamed when they had committed abomination? Nay, they were not at all ashamed. Neither could they blush. Therefore, they shall fall among them that fall in the time of their visitation. They shall be cast down. One of the curses of this generation is they don't blush anymore. You know, some ladies ought to be blushing at how they choose to dress. But they don't. Some men ought to be blushing about the things that come out of their mouth. But they don't. We ought to be ashamed of fits of anger and the way we speak and the way we treat each other and the things we do and how we treat God. But we don't. No, oftentimes for the wicked today, they, they take pride in their iniquity. I can't help but think of the sin of sodomy today. The Bible says that sodomy is an abomination. It's not natural. It's not normal. And I want you to listen to me. I don't care how many they put on TV. I don't care how many sing songs about it. I don't care how many books they write about it. I don't care how they pretend like it's all okay. It's not right, and you in your heart know it. It's built into the heart of man to know that men shouldn't like men and women shouldn't like women. That's built into the very heart of mankind. But they, they push it and they push it and they push it and they push it until you begin to think, well, maybe I am crazy. They make you feel like everybody in the world is gay except you. I think I'm the last straight guy in Wakefield. Looking around the room, I wonder. No, I'm kidding. That's not, that's not true at all. That's terrible. But that's, they make you feel. It's like, 
Man, they, they put, they're putting them in cartoons now. And you watch what your kids watch. They're putting sodomites in all the cartoons. They've got recurring characters in, in all the nighttime shows. But why do I use that? Because they have decided that they're going to take pride in their abomination. They stole God's sign of peace and mercy, the rainbow, and they've stolen that and said, we're going to take God's sign of peace and we're going to wear it as a badge of honor for our sin. And then they label and brand their own things gay pride parades, gay pride month, gay pride this. And God looks down from heaven and said, they're not ashamed. They don't blush. But, you know, when's the last time you saw something come across your TV screen and you went, oh, uh, man, I shouldn't have seen that. Wow. Um, Lord, I'm sorry. Man, I'm ashamed. Uh, I don't know how that even got through. No, we just sit there like zombies and just watch it as it's pumped into our brain. Listen to the music about abominations and just let it pump and flood into our brain. What are we thinking? See, Christians have to get back to the idea that I want to blush at sin. I want to be ashamed at my sin. I want to go before the God of heaven and say, God, I have a hard time even lifting my eyes to you right now. I am so ashamed and I am so sorry and I don't ever want to do that again. God, help me. God's people should mourn. But here's the thing about sin. Sin always causes sorrow. You'll either be sorry for sin now and confess it and forsake it, or you'll be sorry for sin later as it's destroying you. But you will be sorry for your sin. Sin should be mourned. Let's move on. Number three, sin should be abhorred. Look at Romans chapter 12. Sin should be abhorred. Now, abhor is a stronger word than hatred. All right, Romans chapter 12 and verse 9. If you're there, say amen. All right, Romans chapter 12, verse 9. Let's read it together. Let love be without dissimulation. Abhor that which is evil. Cleave to that which is good. All right, so watch this. Abhor that which was evil. Simple. Simple statement. What does abhor mean? It's a stronger word than hate. It means to hate extremely or with contempt, to loathe, to detest, or abominate. It also means to cast off or reject it. Abhor is the verb form of the noun abomination. God says abhor evil. Don't just hate it. Learn to be disgusted by it. Learn to loathe it. Learn to look at it and, and you, just, you just have such a hatred. It almost causes a physical response. When you loathe something, it's almost like you get that kind of gag reflex. How many of you have a food that you absolutely hate? I mean, you absolutely hate. For me, growing up, it was canned tuna. I'm telling you now, I don't believe it's tuna in the can. I think it's false marketing. If I had money, I'd sue the company. We'd find out what's really in there. 
DNA testing. Either that or it's like tuna from Chernobyl or something. I mean, it's like it doesn't smell like tuna, right? I've had real tuna. I like real tuna. But whenever you crack that can open and like this green cloud kind of goes into the room, it's, it's bad. Now, how many of you love canned tuna? See, I, I, I'm failing as a pastor. I don't know. God, I'm sorry. I'm just so sorry. My wife loves canned tuna. I mean, loves it. And I loathe it. I mean, like, hate it. And so this was a real test for our marriage. It's like, I don't know if this is going to work out. I'm, I'm, I'm joking, of course. But when my wife got really sick and she could no longer not only fix us meals, but she couldn't fix her own meals. Tuna is a high source of protein. It's good for you. And she loves it. And so I remember the day like it was yesterday. <laughs> I remember the day when she was hungry and she's like, she's trying to think through if she was well enough to get up and walk to the kitchen and make herself a, a tuna sandwich. And, you know, you take the tuna and you put the mayo in it and cut up little pieces of celery and try to make it edible, you know. <laughs> and I'll never forget the day that I said, I'll go make it. And she kind of laughed and said, no, because she knows I hate it. I mean, it used to be she would open a can in the kitchen and I'd be in the bedroom. I'd be like, Sarah, <laughs> did you open a can of tuna? And she'd be like, yeah, I was trying to get it before you got out here. I'm like, open the windows. You know, I mean, it's. But it was. It was a day when I said, I'll go make the sandwich. And I remember and I don't know how many times since then. I've gone out to the kitchen, and I put that thing in there, and that's always that first turn where it punctures the can. It's like, and the tuna smell comes up. I'm like, I love my wife. I love my wife. I love my wife. I love, I love my wife. I love my wife. I love my wife. But you know what? Really, to me, it became a test of my love in my mind. You know, I had to work myself up for this, like Dave and Goliath. And every time I'd make my wife a, a tuna sandwich, it was, I love my wife more than I hate tuna. And I wonder what it is in your life that you really hate. I mean, you really hate it. But you know what the sad fact is? I think I hated canned tuna more than I hated sin. I can make the case that canned tuna is sin, but that's for another message. We'd have to delve into the Greek, you know, and get, get way down deep on that one. Why don't we hate sin? We see what sin did to the world. We see what sin's done to others. We see what sin did to our Savior. And yet we excuse it. And we allow it. And we give it entrance into our lives. And then we beg God for help whenever it's destroying us. And we need to stop that Christian cycle by saying, Lord, help me not only to hate sin, help me to abhor it. Help me to detest it. Help me to have that physical response to, no, I can't even, I can't even, I can't even think about that. That'd be a life changer, wouldn't it? Let me give you the last one here. Then we go to the house. How should we think about sin? Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 
Christian's attitude towards sin. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. I'll just mention this one. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 22. Let's read it together. Ready? Abstain from all appearance of evil. All right, now let's just talk honestly for a minute. It's amazing to me how many Christians don't want to acknowledge this verse even exists. I was talking to someone recently and I brought up this verse. They said, well, what's wrong with such and such? And I gave them several verses. And then I mentioned this verse. I said, the Bible says abstain from all appearance of evil. They're like, oh, I mean, is that really, I mean, really? Is that that really a thing? And I was like, wow. Since when did this verse not matter? The Bible says we should not only hate sin, we should not only mourn over sin, we should not only abhor it, but we should avoid the appearance of sin. Why? I think there's two reasons why. The first is there are people in your life that really hope that you do have victory in your life. They need you to conquer the sins that are killing them. They need to see it work in your life so that they will accept the help of God in their life. And anytime it even looks like you're involved in sin, Satan goes to him and says, see, that's not real. That's not real. They pretend like they've got victory. They don't. They're sinning in the background. And you know this world's cynical, and everybody thinks everybody's a hypocrite. And so even the appearance of evil can give Satan ammunition to say, see, that stuff's not real. But I guarantee you, if we had the eyes of God and we could look through each one of your lives, there is someone you know right now that they're not accepting Jesus or they're backslidden, And maybe they even give you a hard time, but there's a little part in them that desperately hopes what you have is real. But I wonder if they're just seeing enough of it, if they're seeing enough evidence of it. The second reason why we should abstain all appearance of evil is because just like there's people that hope it's real, there's people that hope it's not. And there's God-haters and atheists and agnostics And they look for any and every excuse to blaspheme God. And just like when David got into sin, the prophet told David, you've given the the enemies of the Lord great occasion to blaspheme. You've given the devil ammunition, and now God's work has been hurt. Folks, I'm just going to say it plain. God's people in 2020 have to stop fighting for their personal rights And start fighting for the glory of God. As long as you are trying to see what you can get away with. Well, does my skirt have to be that long? And does my shirt have to be that tight? Does my hair have to be that short? And do I have to talk that way? And do I have to go Sunday night? And do I have to do this? And do I have to read my Bible? And how much church is church? And is that music really wrong? And how much should I have to do this? As long as you are trying to get out of righteousness... You'll find an excuse. 
But I believe God is looking for people that say, God, I just want to please you. And if that means I stop doing some things I've always done, I just want to please you. And if that means I start doing some things I've never done, I just want to please you. The Bible says in 2 Chronicles chapter 16, The eye of the Lord goeth to and fro over the whole earth, seeking whom he may show himself strong on their behalf. And I'll tell you this, in 2020, God is still looking for people that he can show himself strong in. And it's going to be a people who are sanctified and striving to live a holy life. Let's just choose to please the Lord. Amen. If it even looks wrong, I'm out. If it feels wrong, I'm out. If I think it's okay, but it might offend somebody else, I'm out. You say, but what about your rights? I'd just rather let God have his glory. Amen. And so let's pray. Lord, thanks for teaching us how to think about sin. We ask that you would help us. This is a. An important lesson, but one that is not the milk of the word, it's more the meat of the word. And I pray that you'd help me, help us as a church, help us as individuals learn to yield to you in every area. Stop fighting for our personal rights and personal freedoms and trust you and please you. Help us to hate sin, help us to mourn over it, help us to abhor it, help us to avoid the appearance of it so that we may live like thee. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed.